Good morning and a happy Hanukkah, a warm, illuminating, joyous, celebratory Hanukkah on this fine Tuesday morning to anyone who just might be listening to the Chavrusa podcast, where unlike a traditional Chavrusa or Chavruta, Chavruta, however you pronounce it, arrangement, we are, you have to find a mutual time that works and a pace to go at and duration. Here, we're adapting the Chavrusa model to a podcast format where I initiate the Chavrusa partnership by reading through, learning through a contemporary, an exceptional uh, text with a contemporary lens. And then you, as my Chavrusa, can uh, respond and share thoughts or observations, quotes, ideas, uh, that we could continue the dialogue, and we have some, a few uh, great ones coming in on uh, yesterday's and uh, yesterday's Chavrusa uh, episode uh, that I will share later on today. So, first off, fascinating news coming out of England. We are England. The headline says debates pub food. England debates pub food. Forget Brexit, England is debating scotch eggs. New rules in England aimed at stemming the spread of COVID mean the majority of pubs can serve alcohol only along a substantial meal. In quotes, uh, article written by Sabira Chadahuri in the Wall Street Journal. Is a single boiled egg surrounded by a layer of ground meat enough to comprise a meal? What if it comes with a side salad? Or is it eaten with a knife and fork? In a recent radio interview, George Eustace, the government minister responsible for food, said he thought a scotch egg, which is a boiled egg covered in sausage and breadcrumbs and then deep fried. Fascinating. He says that he thinks probably would count as a substantial meal if there were table service. So that would work. Boiled egg, sausage, Deep fried. Amazing. Shortly after, though, Michael Gove, another senior government minister, said he thought a couple of scotch eggs made up just a starter. He then backtracked in a subsequent televised interview saying a scotch egg is indeed a substantial meal. Now, what about a Cornish pasty, which is a half moon shaped pastry traditionally stuffed with potatoes and meat on its own would not be considered a substantial meal according to the UK's housing secretary, but would pass the test when served with chips or salad. To great consternation of many uh, locals who say pasties are a staple eaten out of a bag by hand and dear God not to be had with sides. No sides allowed. So <laughs> fascinating stuff. And it brings to mind a, uh, a halachic issue in Jewish law as to what constitutes a meal for as uh, as is known on campus as doing the burkat or in Yiddish benching uh, where after one eats a meal one uh, engages in the burkat amazon in, in, in the davening in the praying in the celebrating uh, the, the gratitude in the meal 
that we had just gotten. It's more than just the, the gratitude, but it's an overarching uh, vision of, of the Jewish understanding of not only the process of man and digesting and eating and surviving, but what to do with that life and the land of Israel and uh, all, all, all the different Jewish uh, core theologies are embedded into the Berkat Hamazon, into the grace after the meals. Now, the thing is, is that one only recites the full edition of the Berkat Hamazon after completing a meal. Now, what's the definition of the meal? The source comes from the Torah where it says, V'achalta v'savata v'irachta asadunai alehacha. V'achalta, if you eat v'savata and you're satisfied, then v'irachta asadunai alehacha, then you shall uh, give praise and thanks and gratitude and celebrate Hashem, your God. Now, what though is considered a substantial meal? This same debate that's uh, raging in England now, with this uh, seemingly arbitrary uh, COVID guideline of it needs to be a substantial meal and not just a unsubstantial meal. So what is considered a substantial meal that one would then recite the Berkat Mazot? Now, the Talmud in Brachot on page 20b has a fascinating... Uh, Fascinating saying, and, and the, the Torah, the, the, the oral Torah, the Talmud says the following: Darashar Bavira, Bavira expounded. Sometimes he's citing Rab Ami, sometimes Rab Asi, and he says the following: Amru Baruch The Malachim, the angels, would say before Hashem, they would question Hashem, the Blessed One, the, the Holy One, Rabbanu Shalom, Master of the World. states in your Torah in Deuteronomy. Chapter 10, 17. You do not show favoritism and do not take bribes. This is a core Torah principle not to show favoritism to anyone based on anything in terms of their wealth status, in your skin color, gender, identity. No favoritism. It should, people should be valued based on their core genuinity, who they really are, and not showing favoritism based on external circumstances. And the angels then ask, the Malachim ask Hashem, they say, You show favoritism to the Jewish people. The Chsev, for it says in the Torah in another place, in Bamidbar Numbers, chapter 626, Hashem shows favoritism toward you. This is part of the blessings of the, the priest, the priestly blessing. So how could you show favoritism to to the Jewish people if you yourself say you can't show favoritism um, and can't take bribes? Amar Lahem and Hashem responds, Can I possibly not show favoritism to the Jewish people? I wrote to them, I instructed them in the Torah, in the eternal guide for greatness in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse that you shall eat, be satisfied, and do the berkat, to uh, do this great blessing. And the Jewish people, they, they uh, were medactic with themselves. They were particular with themselves. They, they 
uh, went, they were strict with themselves and went beyond the call of duty. Ad kezayis for ad kebeya, even if they just ate a olive size worth of food or egg of food, uh, they would scotch eggs. They would um, do the brakat. So even though, really, the obligation is only if you eat a full satisfying meal. Jewish people took on themselves to do it, even when they just ate a minimum amount, the minimum size of food, an olive size. You know, of a, a slice of bread, or even possibly less, depending on the size, of uh, and, and they would do the burqa. So that that's the uh, the source here. Now, what? So originally, it's only if it's a satisfying meal, but the Jewish people do it anyway, even if it's a small amount. Now, what is considered a satisfying meal? What if you have somebody who's elderly or who's ill and is not doesn't have a great appetite? Or what if someone is has a larger appetite than somebody else. Different people eat different size amounts of food. A 13-year-old, a 30-year-old, a uh, weightlifter versus a nutritionist, <laughs> they'll probably be eating different uh, amounts of food. So who's, how, does, how do we determine what is the size of food? And the Mishnah Brewer, the great Rabbi Yisrael Mayor Kagan, who uh, wrote the Mishnah Brewer, which is a, a universally viewed uh authority on all matters of halacha, a modern day application of Jewish law, he says that it will vary. This will vary dependent on each person and circumstance. He uses a, he quotes a radvaz in the Bir Halacha where he explains his ruling. Um, he quotes the radvaz that uh, everyone would say that even biblically somebody who is Normal, uh, their nor- their meal, their appetite is filled with less than the average person will still be obligated to do the brakat Now, this this is fascinating because, say you have bread, um, but your bread is only a small amount of bread, and your satiation, your meal is coming from other things. You know, you're you're not into the the carbs and the processed carbs and your meal is mostly full of raw, healthy, unprocessed foods, straight as the way Hashem intended them. Beautiful, fresh fruits and vegetables and grains, uh, but you're not actually eating uh, a lot of bread. So then, would that constitute a a meal? Would that be a substantial meal if there's only a minimal amount of bread, but you combined it with lots of other foods? And Rav Moshe Feinstein uh, talks about this, the Igros Moshe, in uh, Orachayim, in the fourth volume of Orachayim, in Simon Mem Aleph, in the 41st letter. And it's uh, a very similar ruling was issued by Rabbi Vadya Yosef, uh, who's the great Sephardic halachic authority. Um, and they both write that the Sevilla, the satisfying measure that one needs is a a tenai. It's a condition. So it, what they're coming to address really is, is how does this work? Meaning how, how can we have a law that is so dependent on each person and how does a person know what is considered satisfying if it, it fluctuates and each person is on their own? So then how does this actually uh, how does it actually work? How, what metric would one use? So they explain the following. That really 
one is obligated to Birkat Amazon is right away, as soon as you eat that minimal amount, when you eat that kezayis or kebeya, when you eat that, that uh, olive-sized amount, that already triggers uh, the meal. That's the meal. It constitutes a meal. Now, the problem is, if you're not full from that, so then, looking back, it wasn't actually a meal. Because if you're going to go, and you eat that one slice of meal, and then you're going to go and gorge on, on three slices of pizza and and uh, Oreos and whatnot, so then, obviously it wasn't a meal, because <laughs> if it was a meal, back in those days, there wasn't this constant uh, culture of just eating and popping snacks. You ate your meal, and you moved on to the rest of your day. So, if you're going to keep on eating, then it shows retroactively that it was never actually a meal. So the fact that you need it to be satisfying is not, is not going into the, to the actual measurement of how much you need to eat. That's a separate condition. It's a tonight that the meal that you eat must satisfy you. So therefore, if you eat, let's say, one slice of bread and then you had a, you know, a good dip and uh, some good spreads, and now you're satisfied, so of course that would have the the uh, of the the opportunity and obligation to recite the Brakata Mazon because you're full. Whereas if you didn't and, and you just uh, had a small amount of food but you weren't actually full, then you would be lacking the conditions necessary to trigger the Brakata Mazon opportunity. And that's how it, it, it becomes very understandable that the metric and the rubric to use are you eating that minimal amount, at least, of, of grain bread product, and then are you full? And that's the uh, rubric that I would suggest England <laughs> take into account uh, amid great confusion and debate in England. Is the scotch egg? Yes, is it not? Deep fried, not deep fried, doesn't, uh, shouldn't p- play into the factor. Forget about the deep fried, the sausage, the side dishes, the no side dishes, the condition should be, if you want to uh, use this arbitrary metric of a satisfying meal to be able to serve alcohol during COVID-19, then the metric you could use is, are you going to go be eating afterward or beforehand, or is this going to be your meal uh, that satisfies you for the evening? Now, a couple of uh, get-arounds going on in, in Liverpool, uh, where the pub is serving soup, and... Uh, their soup is their lager. Their house lager is their soup. So they're using their alcohol as a food. I don't know if uh, they're going to get away with that. Okay. Now, well, uh, just one more point on this uh, Talmud fascinating Gemara. Where the Gemara says that the Jewish people, al they were particular with themselves. That even if it was just a kezayis, even if it was just an olive size, they would do the brachat. Now the question is, this seems to be extra word, al-atzmam, on themselves. They could just say, heim diktiku, they were particular, that even if it was an olive branch. Why, did, why does that add on themselves? So Rabchaim Velazhener, the great founder of the Velazhen yeshiva in the city of Velazhen, and uh, which was known as the mother of yeshivas because it was... It was uh, Particular, particularly innovative and, and elite and uh, influential. And Chayav um, Lajner explains the following. He says that this is not the only measurement of a meal that we have in halacha and Jewish law because we also have that if somebody comes to your door, you know somebody that doesn't have a meal, then you're obligated to perform uh, chesed and tzedakah and to, to help them out and provide them a meal. 
So now what's considered a meal? If you're going to say, well, even an olive size, a small piece of bread is considered a meal that you'd have to do per zone. What's going to happen about all these poor people that, you know, people will say, oh, you know, what? I'll just go the minimum amount here. Take my, uh, you know, 13 cents. You could buy a slice of bread with that and, and leave me alone. That, that would be a great travesty. Says Rechaim Velazhen and uh, Jewish people, they were particular for themselves. For themselves, I'm going to be uh, super religious. I'm going to be from, I'm going to go beyond the letter of the law myself. And even if it's just a small piece of bread, I'm going to bench, I'm going to do the burkat. But for other people, uh, I'm going to go to the, to the maximum amount. I'm going to give them the full meal that they're fully satisfied. I'm not going to let him leave. I'm not going to let her leave my home until she's fully uh, satisfied and no more hungry people. Uh, what a beautiful idea. And Silcha uh, Bonim of Parshischa provides a drop more of insight. And he says that there, there's really two parts in Berkat Amazon when, when you're being uh, gratitude, when we say the, the gratitude uh, for the meal, number one is the fact that you got a meal and that you're full and that you have the energy to go out into the world. But there's also the gratitude of where it came from, that the, the world is conditioned in a way that you think about it, you think about photosynthesis and, and the grains popping out of the ground, out of soil. It, it's unbelievable how much how much wisdom and unity in the world and the conditions for for these foods to come about in the world and that when when a Jew thinks that all of this that Hashem created in the world just for humans, just for me to be able to have this meal and not only just a meal that satisfies me, but it's delicious and it's and it's uh, pleasurable. You're filled with that unbelievable amount, and that is even on a kizayis, even on a on a small olive-sized morsel of food. Even if you don't have that satisfying condition, that you know you're actually uh, full, but just the fact that you're getting such a gift. Imagine uh, uh, someone gives you a gift. You know, it's a prestigious professor somewhere, or politician, or celebrity. Then even that small gift, you value it from because it came from this uh, from that entity, from that person. So when a Jew thinks that this Hashem gave me this gift. That's unbelievable. And you know, even the smallest amount is makes you want to dance. And he concludes so beautifully that he learns that back into the uh, the Gemara there in, in Brachas. That Hashem's looking at the Jewish people and using the same rubric with us that the smallest amount that we give to Hashem, the smallest amount, the one extra minute of uh, of making a, a bracha of a berkat amazon, or the five extra minutes of a, of a Shabbos, or the one more idea, learning Torah, one more act of kindness, one more uh, overcoming a, a urge for, for anger, or to saying, participating in a, in a negative conversation. Every tiny thing that a Jew gives uh, in the service of Hashem, Hashem views that as this is this is coming from a Jew. This is coming from from my child. This is unbelievable. I'm I'm thrilled. This is even a kezayis, even just a, a small olive size uh, makes Hashem want to dance. Now let's talk about bread. Segues so beautifully into today's chavrusa uh, learning on we're we're learning chapter ten today in the book Hanukkah, capturing the light, and he talks about the. Offering that one brings out of gratitude, a thanksgiving offering, a toda, a carbon toda, and although it's in the category of shalamim, of this category of offerings, which typically you have two days 
to consume it, to finish eating it. Um, for Carbon uh, da for Thanksgiving one, you only got one day and the following night. And in addition, you got to bring 40 loaves of bread with you. So you got to have 40 loaves of bread and finish it in a reduced amount of time frame. Alright, so that's a lot of a lot of uh, bread and carbs, and it's probably not too uh, too too recommended. So, what's going on here? The idea is because what what do you got to do if you got to consume it all and you can't leave any leftovers? You're gonna have to invite friends. You're gonna inv gotta invite people. Help me out. Come, I got this this beautiful uh, fresh sourdough and artisanal uh, ciabatta bread. Let's let's uh, let's dig in. Let's let's celebrate this thing that I'm thankful for. Because that's the greatest form of gratitude is when you spread the message, you spread the word, and and you spread the uh, spread the goodness. And there's a very unique feature on Hanukkah that the candles are lit publicly. They're lit outside the door or by the front window to publicize the nace, Persume nisa in Aramaic, to spread uh, spread the miracle. And wh where does this come from? What's that source? Why why is this particular on Hanukkah that we're spreading? Spreading the message, and one of the ideas is, is that it's the same way as as the carbon toda. When you're thankful and you're grateful for something, you want to share it with others, or you should share it with others. So, to Hanukkah, we're sharing it with others by putting it on the window. There's another explanation, Rabbi Daniel Habavali, the Babylonian, one of the Rishonim, one of the the medieval great Jewish scholars and leaders, explains that the source of the mitzvah actually is. One of the Torah mitzvot, one of the six thirteen, is to make a kiddush Hashem, to sanctify godliness in the world, to elevate the the ideal of what it means for a person to be a godly person, to bring these concepts of godliness out into the world, and therefore, when we're talking about these messages, the Hanukkah, which if you go back in the first nine chapters and the previous episodes of the Chavrusa. Right, there's the common theme here that, that we, we could take godliness and, and encapsulate it and and actualize it and make it real. And that is, is the greatest response to the Greeks. And that's what the idea of, of Hanukkah, of spreading this message, putting it out into the window, putting it out into the streets, giving this over this message of godliness is the greatest Kiddush Hashem and uh, what we're trying to, what we're going for. In general life as a Jew, this mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, the Rambam says, Maimani says, is one of the, the greatest core mitzvot, and the opposite is one of the worst, Averot, uh, the one of the worst uh, missed opportunities that a person could uh, engage in is Chilul Hashem, is creating a vacancy of godliness, uh, 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 diminishing the prestige of holiness in the world and of, of human potential in the world. And that is the, the call of a Jew, the call of a person in today's day and age is to be a force for increased, increased goodness in the world and in, in increased hope, increased devotion, increased meaning and purpose in the world instead of denigrating it further and further. Just that, by the way, according to this explanation by Rabbi Daniel Abavali, this has a great implication because it turns out then that the lighting of the Hanukkah menorah actually fulfills a biblical level of Amitza, Torah commandment. Uh, unlike the, the perhaps conventionally understood that it's a Mitzvah de Rabbana, uh, has this big novel uh, outcome from it. Now, turning to 
the Harusas uh, that I'm, I'm privileged to have uh, listening to this. I had an old old friend who I actually used to have a real Harusa in person with uh, back in the day when I used to learn in the yeshiva of Passaic, New Jersey, who uh, messaged me that he had uh, listened to it, and it's so great to uh, once again hear from his Harusa. So uh, that made me feel great. Thank you very much, Yosef. Good stuff. And um, we had a great scholar, a great uh, wise former uh, student of mine back in Arizona. She is now learning in Yerushalayim in Israel, learning great deep Torah and growth there. And she commented as follows. Happy Hanukkah. Hope it will be possible to see you guys in 2021. Yes, indeed. I'm hoping so as well. And she wrote, I really, really like the idea of how we fought back against Haman spiritually despite the physical threat and how we fought back against the Greeks physically, even though it was a spiritual threat. It would be cool to look more into that. Also, the Tzniot section was great explanation points for them. You covered all my favorite ideas, especially Panim, Bifnim, Pnimius. I love the Harusa idea. Okay, great stuff. So it would be cool to look more into the, the Greek response to the physical response by uh, or, or, uh, a spiritual threat. Now, what's fascinating is uh, like this. So, the what, what, what is the standard? Well, what should, wh- which one is the, the abnormal response? Is it the one on Purim uh, where the response is a spiritual one? Lech Kinos Kala Yehudim Esther writes to Mordechai, instructs Mordechai to say, go gather all the Jews together. Uh, we should create more Jewish unity. That's the first response, which of course is emblematic in the Shalach Manos, the practice of how we celebrate Purim by giving gifts and inviting people and and giving uh, charity. Uh, But that's a spiritual response as opposed to Hanukkah, which is the physical response. Which one is the the one more out of of the standard? So it's a good question and and it it probably will depend on, on the time and circumstances for sure. And there, there's a lot of Kabbalistic notions here as well. Rabbi Hanan Wasserman, who was the head of Yeshiva in Baranovich, one of the primary disciples of the Chavetz Chaim, of the Mishnah who we quoted earlier, the, the great halachic authority, Rabbi Zolmeyer Kagan, Rabbi Hanan Baranovich talks about um, this from a more Kabbalistic perspective that sometimes there is Midas Hadin and sometimes there's Midas HaChesed and the Satan is mekatric against the Midas HaChesed. So sometimes Hashem is running the world in terms of strict judgment and that will end up in, at times, there, there, it's not an overflow of love and compassion in the world, but there's suffering in the world and all that is, is meant, uh, it's a call to action uh, for people, for humanity. And sometimes then the, the response to Midas Hadin, the response to when um, there, there is this mode of, of existence um, is going to be to that call to action, that call to improve on, on the spiritual end. And then there's other times that it's Midas Chesed that really it's, it's that and, and how Hashem really wanted to create the world or did create the world with Midas Chesed, uh, overcoming the Midas Hadin, overcoming the strict 
exacting is a better word the exact way of of, of exacting way of running the world and it's only the satan the etzahara the evil inclination the bechira the free will of other people that are getting in the way of that and that needs to be fought back physically and that's what was going on in the times of the greeks so that's a more uh, mystical abstract explanation but there's another uh, awesome idea uh, which i heard from rabbi rocham olshin who was uh, head of the yeshiva at the time of the, yeshiva, the my alumnus, uh, based in Gavoa in Lakewood, New Jersey. And Rabbi Rocham Olshin says the following. Um, he says there's a well-known idea, and he quotes from his teacher, Rabbi Yerucham, who was the mashkiach, the spiritual uh, overseer, a very unique role in the Jewish world of a mashkiach. He was the mashkiach in the yeshiva of the Mir. So he didn't have any formal teaching duties, or obligations in terms of his his uh, staffing, uh, but that he would go around and form connections with, with students and advise them and mentor them. Um, and he was a very uh, dear mentor and, and supremely wise. Uh, so a lot of his talks have been recorded and uh, s- some really core, deep stuff. And Rabbi Rocham talks about this idea that whenever there is a seemingly anti-Semitic decree stopping outlawing different mitzvot. So he was talking at the time, this was in, in Russia, and, and I believe Poland too, um, there was a ban against shechita, against kosher slaughter law. And, you know, there's a, a great outcry, and, and why are they particularly targeting kashrut? The, the kosher law of slaughtering is, is the most humane uh, way if you're going to slaughter an animal. Maybe don't do it at all, but if you're going to... Uh, the most you mean to do it is through sheets. So why are they particularly targeting this? Uh, similarly, circumcision um, at times come on, comes under attack. And he says, don't don't pivot right away to anti-Semitism when we got to fight it and, and advocate it, etc. He says, first understand where it's coming from, the source of it. He says, you're not, we're not in, uh, we're not the bailim, we're not the owners of mitzvos. So you can't just. Right, but the, the conventional way of thinking is like I'm in charge here I can do the mitzvah when I want and if I can't do it then there's a great travesty being done here so mitzvahs are real they're dynamic he quotes a, a verse in the Torah the Torah says yom if you leave Torah if you leave mitzvahs for one day then it will leave you for two what does that mean? that means that, that it's not It's not. Like, this is something that you're in control you could decide I do it or not it's real it's dynamic it's a relationship it's something vibrant and therefore, in the same way, if you just ignore somebody, you can't just revert back the next day. Oh, hi, here I am. No, you gotta make reparations. You gotta fix that 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 ignoring that you did. You gotta uh, mend that relationship. It's the same is true with Torah mitzvahs. And when when you denigrate a mitzvah, you denigrate Torah, then you're not just gonna be able to return back the next day and uh, jump right back in. But you can have to rebuild uh, that relationship. So if Torah and mitzvahs are real and they're vibrant and it's it's dynamic, therefore, if you slight the Torah or if you don't respect it as much, if you don't respect a certain concept of uh, growth and spirituality, then you're gonna have to you're gonna have to uh, recapture that by going out and uh, laying yourself out for that mitzvah. And therefore, what's going on? He says he tells the the students at the time when they're banning shechita and brismila that. This is not the, the. It's not the coming from the anti-Semitic government at the time, which they were. 
He says, they don't have the power over them. It says, we have the power. We've relinquished it by not respecting it enough. If we really cared, if we were really devoted, and it wasn't just lackadaisical, then nobody would ever have the power, the spiritual energy, to, to get in the way of a mitzvah. So any time, any time, whether it's today, in 2020, in two weeks from now in 2021, or back in the day in the Hanukkah story, anytime there was an edict, anytime there was a ban against a mitzvah, it's because they, we, they back in the day and we today, are not giving it enough devotion. And at the time of the base of Mikdash, where the, the Greeks, they sacked the base of Mikdash, they, they took over the temple, they occupied uh, Yerushalayim, they're taking over Eretz Yisrael. They're stopping uh, the learning of Torah. They're stopping... Uh, Shabbos, stopping circumcision, stopping the, the holiness of, of weddings and the, the unique unity between husband and wife, then that must mean that it wasn't being respected enough. And that's what the, the people at the time, the, the Hashmano and the Maccabees realized, that this is something that is not going to be enough just to go with the standard davening and growing and becoming a little bit more committed. We got to make a stand. We got to show that we're ready to lay down our lives. So he says that war, war is not just the way it's simply on the surface. You know, you know two people uh, battling and whoever's stronger wins. When you're going to war, it's not just about the battle, but it's saying that I am ready to give up my life for a higher value. Give me liberty, give me life. Liberty, not as defined as you know, just physical freedom, but liberty to, to engage in my truest selves. You're, you're, you're fighting for a battle. I'm willing to be most enough. I'm willing to give up my life for an ideal, for a story. That's the, that act itself of even going out there, even if the war doesn't happen. But the fact that you're ready to do it, that shows the prestige that you're, you're restoring to, to these values. That it's not just, okay, if I'm able to, I'll do it. But no, when the going gets tough, I'm going to go out there. You know, the good example probably today, just a contemporary non-religious example perhaps, is standing up for, for Israel on a college campus in, in on issues that are, are when Israel's morality comes under attack and its, its very existence, to be able to uh, go against the winds when, when, when it's tough and you're putting yourself out there. You're saying, this is a value uh, that I hold dear. Then that is something that, that is, 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 shows how much it's important to you because it's not only when it's convenient and everybody applauds me for for my take on something but even when it's sometimes uh, against uh the rubric of what everybody uh wants uh me to to say or parrot and that is what was happening on hanukkah the the going to battle was saying i'm ready to restore my devotion my prestige to these mitzvahs and that's that's why hanukkah today is as present as ever, the message of lighting the menorah, when you're lighting the menorah and you're saying that this is important, that this is something that I'm willing to devote and sacrifice for, and it's, it's a priority, and it's, it's public, it's out there, I'm lighting it in, in, the, in the window, I'm lighting it at the door, I'm bringing it into the streets, I'm being proud of it, and uh, it's a, a deep idea coming, the, the Hanukkah response is embedded in the very uh, prestige and devotion and how we how we are uh, evaluating our values